the, uh, the passage I'm going to be reading out of today is going to be Psalm 33, if you want to follow along. The whole chapter, Psalm 33. And, and as you turn to that, I, I'm going to ask you a question. If you had access to the song book or the prayer book that Jesus would have had, would you read it? Absolutely, right? The, the answer is absolutely. I would love to have the song book that Jesus would have grown up singing or the prayer book that Jesus would have grown up reading his prayers out of. Well, I've got great news for you. You have access to that song book. You have access to that prayer book. It is found in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms for generations and generations of Israel's history was the song book that the people used to sing their songs in praise to God. And the book of Psalms was also their prayer book. So if you didn't have an instrument, you could just pray that psalm. And if you had an instrument, they had tunes and melodies that you could sing those songs to, and you would go ahead and sing. And in fact, something very interesting uh, about our roots in Judaism as Christians is the Judeo-Christian faith that we follow is one of the only religions in the world that has a high focus on music as a part of our worship service. As you go throughout the world and discover other world religions, major world religions don't use music to the extent that we as Christians use music. You go to every church in the world that is a Christian church, they will have some form of music playing, even if it's not that good. Uh, my grandma did a, uh, a missions trip over to Burundi in Africa, and she said that they had like an hour-long worship service, and she said she could not discern what the music was or what the words were, but she knew that the church there was giving their all in praise to God, and they were spending so much time singing to God and praising God. It just wells up in us as Christians that when we get closer to God, we want to sing to him. We want to give praise. Well, the psalm we're looking at today, Psalm chapter uh, uh, 33, is a psalm of praise, and it's a call to be singing to God always and to always give thanks to him. So let's read it. I'm not going to sing it, by the way, if you were hoping for that. <laughs> sing for joy to the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all of their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all of their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. 
A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anybody by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us, according as we have hoped in you. The first part of that passage uh, of this song here, verses 1 through 5, they, they sort of act as this introduction into the song. Uh, and it starts, first of all, with this call to sing. So it's this very upfront, this call, sing for joy, shout for joy, give thanks to the Lord. And, and it's calling all of those people that believe in God to be giving thanks and praise to him. So it's this call right up front, sort of like what we do in our worship service. Would you please stand and, and let's go into singing together. And soon at the end of the worship service, we're going to say let's bow our heads and pray. And the worship team is going to come back up and we're going to have that call back into singing. Well, this song does it right at the outset. As you begin to sing it, you would say, shout for joy. Everybody, stand up. Let's praise God together. You who are righteous, you who are upright, you who God has called, let's sing together. And, and when David wrote this song, he had instruments in mind. And, and so what he said is, pick up the harp, pick up the lyre. Now, uh, I know that's in the Bible, but... Does that mean we have to get rid of all of our instruments and go back to the harp and the lyre? No, 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 we don't have to do that. And I know some of the people in the worship team are thinking, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to learn how to play the lyre, whatever that is. But David is saying, don't just sing, but grab instruments, grab music, grab something to make a melody with. And in this call to praise, when he says grab an instrument, it shows how intimate music can be. We are the only ones on earth that make music. Now, and I know it's springtime and birds are waking you up really early in the morning and you tell yourself, oh, the birds are singing. That's not singing. That's chirping. That is them making noise. We as humans do something different that the animals don't do. And in fact, uh, the angels don't even do it. We sing. We make music. We fashion instruments and we play them. And so David is calling our attention to the fact that when we sing, it is something that happens internally that we want to be a part of. We want to give praise and thanks to God and so we go out and we learn an instrument or we go out and we hear somebody else who learned an instrument play for us. But in any case, we want to make music. We want to sing to the Lord. So this opening, this opening few verses is calling our attention to the fact that God is praiseworthy and we should praise him and we should use our voices and we should use whatever instruments we have available to praise God. Now, you're probably asking, why would we go about praising God? Well, very simply, because he deserves it. Obviously, God deserves all of our praise, but, you know, this psalm wouldn't be that great if all David said in the first few verses is, hey, sing to God, grab your instrument, stand up. He deserves it. Amen. No, he goes into all of these reasons why God deserves our praise each and every day. And so uh, what he says following here in, in verse 5 is that, 
God's word is upright. He loves justice. His work is faithful. His loving kindness is throughout the whole world. So David is letting us know God God is worthy of our praise because his love is everywhere. God is worthy of our praise because he's created not only the earth, he's created us. God has not only created us, but he's been faithful to us. God has had plans and work in our life that he's stuck to. And once we come to realize this, we're going to want to give praise to God. And so the following verses after this opening introduction are reasons as to why we should praise God and sing to him. This is all evidence of why God is worthy of our praise. So the next few verses, and and this is sort of split up into about uh, 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 four different sets of verses that this song goes through as to why God is worthy of our praise. Verses 6 through 9, this set of verses is evidenced in the creation of the world. This is why God is worthy to be praised. The scripture says that uh, by the word of the Lord, uh, uh, the heavens were created and all of its hosts. He spoke and it was done. And what this simply means is all God had to do to create the world was speak it into existence. All God had to do was just say, let there be light, and there was light. All God had to do was, was say, let there be waters, and there was waters. And all God had to do was say, ah, uh, Let there be land that divides the water, and let there be trees, and let there be fish, and let there, you get what I'm saying? All God had to do was say it, and even the nothingness that he created out of listened to his voice. So these verses here are calling to attention the fact that God is worthy of our praise because he can do whatever he wants, and he does good. God has all of the authority in the world. God has all of the majesty in the world. All he had to do was speak, and creation came into existence. But then watch how David talks about creation in the latter half of the verse, in verses 6 through 9. He says, uh, by his mouth he did it. But then he says, he spoke, or excuse me, then he says, he gathered and he laid up. So now we get this image, not so much of God speaking it and it comes into existence, but now we get this image of God coming down into creation and moving it with his hands. Now we get this image where God is coming down into creation. First he says, let there be light, and then he goes and he makes the light. And then God says, let there be waters, and then he goes down and he makes the waters. And then he says, let there be land. And then he goes down, and and this is where David is really calling attention. He gathers up the waters of the sea as a heap. He lays up the deeps in the storehouses. And so what you get is, is this image that not only does God call creation into existence, God is the one who comes down and with his hands works in creation. Now we have this image of God saying, let there be land, and then he comes down, and with his own hands, he spreads the waters apart, he lifts the land up, he creates what's there. And what David is really trying to get us to understand is, God not only has the authority to call things into existence, God is also a God of relationship, and he will come down and work with his hands for his creation. God not only says, do this, but God will himself do it. 
The best illustration I could come up with is uh, the difference between when you have a manager at your job that tells you what to do and a manager at your job that tells you what to do and then helps you do it. You know the difference? And it's amazing how the workplace runs incredibly differently when you have a manager who says, go and get this done, and then he comes and helps. I'm thinking back to my McDonald's days when I was in uh, high school and, and college. We had one manager that came in, and, and he was from a different branch. He would come in every so often, um, and, and when he came in, he would immediately go to the office. You know, you just immediately go into the office and start doing paperwork and, and all of that. And then every so often, he would come out, and he'd look at a few of us, and he'd say, okay, I want you on grill, and I want you on the front register. Okay, get back to work. And he was really good. He had that authority to come out and tell us what to do, and we would do what he told us what to do, because we valued our paychecks. But then, if we needed help, he was the first one to come out and help wherever we needed it. And so if there was a rush of people, he'd be back there and he would be making sandwiches or he'd go and he'd uh, help people take orders on the register. Not only did he do that, he was good at it. And not only was he good at it, he was better than us, which made us work faster, by the way. But there was a difference between when he showed up and maybe when somebody else showed up because when he showed up, he not only carried the authority that we had to do what he told us to do, but he also carried with him a work ethic that he is going to work alongside us and work with us for what we were supposed to do. And David said, this is, this is the kind of creator we have in heaven. He not only spoke our lives into existence, our individual beings, but he also came down and he formed you in your mother's womb. He knows you intimately because he called you into existence and he personally created you. Right there is enough to give God praise. Right there is enough that we should stand up and begin to sing for him. Well, there's more. Verses 10 through 12, now, now David is talking about the counsel of God and the counsel of the enemies. And, and what he says here in verse 10 is that the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. And then later on in, in uh, verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. And so now David is setting up this contrast between those who have plans against you and the one who has a great plan for your life. Now think for a moment this is King David that wrote this psalm here. This is King David, who's the greatest king that Israel has ever seen, and he knows that there are other nations around Israel that are counseling against Israel. They see Israel as a threat, they see Israel as the enemy, and they have plans to overtake the nation. And so as David is writing this down, he's writing out the very fact that he has enemies that want to kill him. He has enemies that want to take the nation from him. And so he writes down that these nations are counseling together to work against him. These nations have plans that he should fail. But then he says those plans are no match for the counsel of God. And, and notice the contrast too. 
He says, the nations, plural. There's more than one nation out there that's my enemy. There's more than one problem that I have in my life. There are multiple enemies that want to see my destruction, but there's only one God that's planning against their plans. And this one God against the multiple enemies, he is going to nullify their plans. Whatever they have stacked up against me is nothing compared to the greatness and the power that God has in his plans for my life. God's power is greater than anything else in this world that you think may be threatening your very existence. The enemies that you have in this world are no match for the plans that God has for your life because you have been created to do God's work. You have been created to do great things. And, and David even says, the plans of his heart are from generation to generation. God makes his plans known to his people. And so when the enemy comes and, and tries to disrupt your life and, and tries to hurt you, Rest assured that you can go to God and say, God, what was your plan for my life again? And he's not only going to let you know, but when he lets you know, you don't have to worry about the enemy's plans anymore. That's nothing. Who cares what they have planned? What, why does it matter? God's plans are better than their plans. So this is reason to give praise to God. Whatever is going on in the world, God has already factored that in and he already has a plan that nullifies what the enemy wants to do against you. Well, now we move on to verses 13 through 17. And, and this poses the question, what do you put your trust in when the enemy attacks? What do you put your trust in when you sense that the enemy or the nations are counseling against you? And it's interesting because David gets very personal here in his own kingship. Uh, looking down at, at the bottom few verses, 16 and 17, the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope of victory. Now, I just want to draw attention really quick to the horse. It's not that Israel was sending out horses to do battle. Okay, Horses were very important for the army because they were like the tanks back then. You could ride a horse faster than you could run. You could shoot bows and arrows off of a horse. If you gather a horse with a chariot, well, now you can have three people that shoot bows off of that. And so oftentimes when armies would gather supplies, they would count horses as several uh, soldiers. So they could say, well, I have 10,000 soldiers and 1,000 horses. And so you would constantly factor horses in with your army. And, and what David is doing in these verses is he's going through the list and he's saying none of that matters. A king is not saved by, an ar by a mighty army. Why would that matter to David? He's the king, <laughs> It's his job to raise up an army in the nation, and it's his job to direct that army against the other nations that pose a threat to him. And David is sitting on his throne writing this psalm, and he's saying, that doesn't matter. 
I can raise up the world's largest army, and it's not my army that's going to save my skin. And then he goes on and he says, it doesn't matter if we have the best warriors. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. And so David even knows, I could raise up some of the best soldiers that the world has ever seen. Not only the greatest army, but now let's look at the individual soldiers. I could train them better than any other soldier, and he's still not going to be the one that saves my life. And then he goes on and says, with the horses, I could have a thousand horses and, and I could attack multitudes of nations at once with my chariots and, and with my uh, mounted soldiers. But even they are not going to be the ones that save my life. Who is the one that's going to save my life? Well, go back up to verse 13. The Lord who looks from heaven who sees all of the sons of men, who, who from his dwelling place looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. So David knows that it doesn't matter what he puts his trust in here on earth. The one that he should put his trust in is actually the one in heaven. David is writing this out, and what he's wanting us to discern from this is, is very simply is there anything in this world that you've put your trust in to save your life? Is there anything in this world that you're thinking, well, if I just had this one item, my life would be better? Or have you been able to come to the conclusion that I have Jesus, therefore I have everything I need in my life? I, I've said this before while preaching. We, we oftentimes have this tendency to create a to-do list for God and then hand it off to him and that becomes our prayer life. You ever do that? You, you sit down and you think, okay, what do I need to get through this week? Well, I need, you know, uh, the car to get fixed and I need my finances in order and I've got to get through my work day and my job. Okay, those are the things I need. Okay, God, let me come to you. Oh, Lord, fix my car. Oh, Lord, give me a bigger paycheck. Oh, Lord, Get me through this job. I'm not saying those are bad prayers, but do you see the problem with that kind of prayer life? You are discerning on your own that you need a vast army and you need warriors and you need horses and God, if I just had these things, I would be safe from the enemy. When in reality, if we know that God who's seated on the throne of heaven is looking down over our life, what we actually need to do is approach God and say, God, the enemy is counseling against me. God, uh, things are not looking good in my life. What do I need, God? Let me know, and I'll give it back to you and trust in you. So where's your trust at? Is it in things of this earth? Are you putting a to-do list together for God? Or are you approaching him personally in a relationship with him, knowing that since he created you, since he watches out for you, since he has plans for you, that you can go to him and simply say, Lord, I trust in you. I know you're going to get me through this, whatever it looks like. Well, finally, we, we conclude this song with verses 18 through 22. And, and it sort of asks the question and answers it at the same time, who is within the counsel of God? Who, who are those people that are upright? Who are those people that are supposed to be singing praises to God? Well, very simply, those who fear the Lord. Those whose soul waits for the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord. 
Very simply, those people that are in a relationship with God. And if you're in a close relationship with God, you're going to have your trust in Him. You're going to fear Him. You're going to do what He tells you to do, and you're going to wait for Him. You're going to trust that He's going to come to your rescue. And so what do we do while we wait? What do we do while we trust in the Lord? Well, let's go back up to the beginning of the song. Verse 1. We are called to sing for joy in the Lord. We are called to give thanks to God. We are called to play skillfully with a a shout of joy. We are called to sing to him a new song. So as we leave this place today, you should be challenged, or you are challenged, and I'm challenging you. Uh, Go out and sing to the Lord. Go out and give him praise. Go, Go out, spend time praising God for what he has done in your life, and get ahead of that. Praise God for what you know he will accomplish in your life. Give praise to God that he has plans for you, that he's nullified the counsel of the enemies. Give praise to God that he has intimately created you, that he is in a relationship with you. Give praise to God through music, sing his praises, give thanks to the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for this calling to give praise to you. Thank you for this reminder that you are worthy of our praise, that uh, no matter what's going on in our life, whether life is good or life is bad, whether we're we're struggling in our faith or or we're on top of it, Lord, uh, we know that we are called to give you praise. And Lord, we also know that in giving you praise, you will speak to us. In giving you praise, you will lay your plans out for us and and in giving you praise we know that we are close to you that we are near to you that you are near to us and that you are speaking to us thank you lord we give you thanks today amen